The Academic Podcast Agency. Episode 2. Does nature have rights? Hello and welcome to Episode 2 of the People and Forest Podcast. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to learn more about our relationships with forests, why forests matter to us, and how new ways of thinking about nature and rights could help us protect forests for present and future generations. I'm Dr. Helen Dancer. I'm a senior lecturer in law and anthropology at the University of Sussex. And for the past few years, I have been researching relationships between people and forests in England and globally. In this podcast, I will be sharing with you some of the insights I have gained through my research on our relationships with forests, nature and rights over the past few years. In this episode, I'll be inviting you to think about how we relate to nature and forests through the language of rights. Is nature and our forests service providers for humans, or should we think of nature as having rights? What might laws for the earth look like? For a moment, I invite you to take your mind's eye to a living being or a place in nature that you feel a connection with. Consider the nature of this connection. Is it functional? Or is it cultural, emotional or spiritual? You may not be able to communicate using human language, but do you have a sense of its needs? Ecuador. I want to begin our round-the-world journey in Ecuador. In December 2021, the country's constitutional court set a global precedent when it upheld the rights of species living in the Los Cedros forest over the rights of the state and corporations to exploit the mineral reserves that lie beneath it. Ecuador was the first country in the world to enshrine the rights of nature in its national constitution in 2008. But this wasn't the first rights of nature law. Two years earlier, in 2006, in the United States, a group of activists successfully campaigned for the rights of natural as well as human communities to be recognised in a local anti-pollution law known as the Tamaquabara Sewage Sludge Ordinance. This local rights of nature law was the first of its kind anywhere in the world. Since these beginnings, the rights of nature has become a global movement that is being increasingly recognised in countries around the world. What are rights of nature? And where does the idea come from? Although the legal concept of rights of nature is quite recent, the idea that humans are part of nature is ancient. Taoism dating back to the 6th century BC, as well as Hinduism, Jainism and Buddhism, share a view that a universal energy connects humans with all other living beings. Ancient Celtic belief systems, the Greek goddess Gaia, and worldviews of many indigenous peoples today are also holistic and centre on respect for Mother Earth. In contrast, environmental law in the UK and elsewhere 
is based on an anthropocentric, hierarchical view of human-Earth relationships. We can trace back the idea of a hierarchical ordering of species to the ancient Greek philosophy of Plato and Aristotle and the great chain of being, which saw God and humans as above all other animals, plants and non-living things. We can find similar ideas of the earth as a God-given dominion for humanity in Judeo-Christian and Islamic texts. These anthropocentric perceptions of human nature relationships have eventually led to a policy idea of ecosystem services as a way to value nature and measure progress towards sustainable development. The concept of ecosystem services views nature rather like an economic stock that has a financial value and produces services that are harvested by humans. For example, timber is an ecosystem service harvested from the natural capital of forests. Since the 1940s, these two approaches of nature as service provider and nature as a subject with rights have been evolving in parallel. The 1970s was a watershed decade for environmental consciousness. It was during that decade, at the same time that the language of ecosystem services was emerging in environmental economics, that an alternative language of rights of nature emerged in the United States in the 1972 Supreme Court case of Sierra Club in Morton. At Mineral King Valley, in the Sequoia National Forest of the Sierra Nevada, a local organisation known as the Sierra Club had tried to block the development of a Disney ski resort. Despite local concern about the impact of the resort on the forest, the claim failed because the court ruled that the club didn't have standing to sue over the development. The case became famous due to the dissenting judgment of Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, who supported conservation parks and was influenced by Christopher Stone's groundbreaking article at the time titled Should Trees Have Standing? In his judgment, Justice Douglas said contemporary public concern for protecting nature's ecological equilibrium should lead to the conferral of standing upon environmental objects to sue for their own preservation. This idea that natural objects like trees and rivers should have legal personhood was groundbreaking for the US legal system. As Christopher Stone remarked in his essay, this was a challenging idea for a common law legal system like the US, or indeed the UK. The US legal system had no procedure to enable natural objects like trees to bring legal claims. How would natural objects communicate their needs to a court? Who would speak for them? And how might damages be awarded? And to whom? Nature or humans? When we think about it, the idea of rights of nature is both beautiful and challenging. It represents not only a change in basic legal assumptions, it also requires us to completely rethink our relationships with nature more broadly. How would we treat nature differently if we said it had rights? Could humans sue natural objects? For example, if a river burst its banks and caused damage to homes or farmland, how might we design law to fit such a paradigm shift? The cultural historian Thomas Berry and environmental lawyer Cormac Cullinan 
have grappled with such questions in developing a 21st century theory of earth justice. In his 1999 book, The Great Work, Thomas Berry described the universe as a communion of subjects. He said that every subject is a member of the earth community. Each member has three rights, the right to be, the right to habitat, and the right to fulfill its role in the ever-renewing processes of the earth community. He argued that this provides the moral foundation for human law. In his 2002 book Wild Law, Cormac Cullinan argued that these principles could provide the basis for measuring the lawfulness of human acts and laws. Anything that violated these fundamental rights would be ethically speaking unlawful. The logical conclusion is that humans would have to adapt their systems of governance to be consistent with the ethics that underpinned the idea of an Earth community. What would this mean for human systems of property rights? The French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in his 1754 Discourse on the Origins and Foundations of Inequality Among Men, famously described the first enclosure of a piece of land as the foundation of civil society and all the crimes, wars, misery and horror that resulted from it. If only someone had, to quote, pulled up the stakes and filled in the ditch and cried out to his fellow men, beware of listening to this imposter. You are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to everyone and that the earth itself belongs to no one, end quote. I have always been struck by Rousseau's romantic approach to questions of equality and our relationship with the earth. His ideas inspired a reverence for nature that persists in the cultural imagination even today. On the face of it, the concepts of private property and earth community seem irreconcilable. But as Thomas Berry and more recently Peter Burden have suggested, private property encompasses a range of relationships, including obligation, responsibility, knowledge, skills and affection. If we take this richer approach to the idea of property, we can start to reframe the way we see our relationships with the environment and other living beings. For example, as one of stewardship, not simply ownership. For many indigenous peoples, however, the idea of the land as property is an alien concept. Ecuador's constitution states that nature or Pachamama, where life is reproduced and occurs, has the right to integral respect for its existence. Already, a generation of children in Ecuador has grown up with a constitution that, for them, has always recognised the rights of Mother Earth alongside human rights. The rights of Mother Earth have been claimed in Ecuador's courts with mixed outcomes. There have been cases such as the Condor Mirador case of 2013, when the rights of nature were defeated by the government's claims to pursue mineral extraction in the interests of economic development. But in 2021, against a backdrop of strong public support, Ecuador's Constitutional Court upheld the rights of nature of Los Cedros protected forest in the Ecuadorian Andes against the threat of mineral extraction, a constitutional world first. Over the course of more than a decade, the rights of nature have become a global movement. Other South American countries, such as Bolivia and Colombia, 
have drawn inspiration from Ecuador through legislation and court cases. In New Zealand, the Maori idea that I am the river, the river is me, was recognised in 2017 through a law that declared the Wanganui River a legal person. Courts in India and Bangladesh have also heard rights of river cases, and in Bangladesh, the Supreme Court has declared the River Turag and all rivers in the country as living entities with legal rights. The movement has also reached Europe. In 2022, Spain became the first European country to pass a rights of nature law when it recognised the Mar Menor and its entire saltwater basin as a subject with rights. At a UN level, at COP15 in Montreal, rights of nature were also included in the global biodiversity framework. What does this mean for the UK? Could rights of nature become part of national or local law here? In 2018, Froome Town Council became the first British local authority to attempt to introduce a bylaw designed to recognise the River Froome as a subject with rights. If it had been successful, this would have made the council and a local charity joint guardians of the river in a similar way to river guardianship in New Zealand and Colombia. The attempt was rejected in 2020, but the idea of rights of rivers in the UK hasn't gone away. Other local groups have taken up the idea, but in the legal and cultural context of the UK, it seems that a change in thinking towards recognising the rights of nature in law still has a way to go. Over the past few years, my research on the rights of nature has led me to conclude two ideas simultaneously. On the one hand, I find the idea of rights of nature beautiful and inspiring. They are grounded in holistic ideas of human-earth relationships that seem intuitively appealing. The iconic 1968 Earthrise photo, taken by the astronauts of the Apollo 8 space mission, reminds us that everything is connected and that humans are part of the indivisible whole that is planet Earth. But rights of nature are just one way to conceptualise human-earth relationships. On this planet of 8 billion people, there are many legal and cultural possibilities. We live in a culturally diverse and plural legal world. We can be inspired and influenced by movements to protect nature that we see happening around the globe. At the same time, we can seek to discover new paradigm-shifting legal and cultural approaches to caring for the planet grounded in our local communities, the arts, education and other spaces where we connect with nature. I see rights of nature as one of a rich range of possibilities for the future of earth justice in the UK and globally. In the next episode, I'll be exploring the cultural heritage of ancient forests in England and other legal ways of thinking about our legacy for a healthy environment and the well-being of future generations. Thank you very much for listening. For recommended reading on the subjects covered in this episode, please visit the show notes on your podcast player. This podcast episode was written and presented by myself, Helen Dancer, produced by Will Hood of the Academic Podcast Agency, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the University of Sussex, and uses Sound Archive from New Forest Sounds.